Hello, everybody. Uh, always a special hello to those of you right now in your lazy boy watching on TV. <sighs> Hope you're comfortable and I'm happy for you. Everyone online, hello. And um, folks with me, hello. Uh, I, I want to go straight to uh, an, an issue. I, I think you'll resonate, but let me tell you an issue. The fear of what could happen. Uh, anyone ever had that? Can, I mean, just acknowledge in some way. Maybe you're right now afraid of what could happen, uh, how long the sermon could go, or whatever. But um, I think that is causing problems that we don't really know are being caused in our lives. It's one of those blind spots that you have a fear of what could happen. You don't realize how that's affecting you, but it's affecting your relationships, your decision-making, and just a lot of things, especially you and God. And I think we need to go after it. Uh, let me give you a, a story to help illustrate this. In uh, 1975, Roger Hart, uh, who was a researcher, went to a small town in Vermont. And what he, well, the, whole, the whole goal was he would gather up a bunch of families in this small town in Vermont. And uh, he wanted to study the kids, most specifically, how they played outside. It was an outside thing, small town, Vermont. So gathers up, gets up over 80 kids, parents basically allowing the 80 kids to get tracked, <laughs> to, to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to let this guy who we just met uh, observe and kind of just document where the kids specifically go to play outside. It was, that was very specific, where to go. So he began to document them and over and over and over. And what he found was this, this is fascinating because some of you won't even relate to this. Remember, it's 1975. Uh, the young kids, like, like the four to five-year-olds, he would document literally a map. He created a map, and they had a tendency that when, they, when, when their parents or guardians were like, yep, you can go play outside, they would go all throughout the entire neighborhood. Like four to five years old, all throughout the whole neighborhood. Some of you right now just grabbed your children, and you're like, no. So, so watch this, though. Uh, as it progressed, that when you got to about nine and ten years old, the, the data showed that most of those kids, most of those kids had free reign of the entire small town. Like, get on your bikes, go wherever you want, be back for dinner. Okay, so you already know something's changed. He went back about seven years ago to do the exact same study of the children of the children that he had done the original study with to see if anything changed. Was it uh, a situational thing like small town Vermont? Was it a uh, parenting style? What was going on? So he, he, he researched. So he gathered everybody up, and this is pretty interesting. And he's like, all right, I now, now kids, I want you to take me to where you go play. And almost all of them, listen, stayed in their own yards. That's as far as he got taken and by hand with this little kid that even the 10-year-olds, they didn't go very far. The, the researcher guy was like, so what's up? <laughs> what changed just in one generation? And, and you might be guessing this, and his guess was this, that, that obviously we're aware of stuff nowadays, the internet, the news, all that kind of stuff. I bet now that we know that the crime rate has risen, that that's what these parents are responding to and these kids have responded to. Well, here's the deal. In that small town of Vermont, the crime rate had not changed at all since the original study in 1975. 
So you might say, well, you shouldn't let your kids do that. Some of you right now are doing that right now. You shouldn't let your kids do that. Well, apparently, statistically, the data said you have no reason to say that in that small town of Vermont. Here's uh, something the researcher said. Fear of the world outside our door narrows the circle of our lives. Now, please do not take this as I am offering you parenting advice, okay? All I'm trying to bring up to you is that you and I, whether you live in a small town in Vermont or you live wherever with with roommates, family, or you live in a secured situation or a scary one, I think we're all having a battle internally that I think God can help us with. Here's the battle. You've already agreed to some of this. What could happen versus what should happen. Many of us are like, well, aren't they the same things? Uh, what could happen, the possibility of if you have that conversation with that person and they, they, they could respond in a bad way, so I'm not going to have that conversation. So you don't do what you should do. You just thought about what could happen and it all blows up. Should you even ask that person on a date? Should you, should you risk this? Should you go to that area? Should you move? Should you what? I think this battle is something you ought to have resolved because it'll create pressure in your mind. I actually think it'll create a pressure in your relationships. Many of us right now might even be reflecting on family members that we have. They're like, this is my, and you're naming people in your head going, they are consumed by what could happen, what could happen. And, And people surrender dreams and aspirations over this stuff. If you got a Bible, go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, uh, we, we, if, here's what we're doing with this series, is we're going to a book in the Bible called Daniel. And if you want to know, what, well, what's that book in there for? Well, one of the many reasons it's there is for you and I to understand how to deal with pressure, how to actually walk through pressure. So if you missed uh, the first week, uh, let me warn you, it's like you don't start a new show on episode 2, okay? So... You're going to have to go to episode one at some point, if you can, to watch, to help make sense of some of this, because we started with Daniel 1. So now Daniel 3, we open up something that, oh, it's tons of good stuff about pressure. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The king at the time decides, I'm going to set up a gigantic statue. You need to know a little bit of detail here is it was to honor one of their gods. It was, it was to uh, actually be like a, a vehicle for them to acknowledge one of their, it was a fake God, not a real one, but to them they thought it was real. And so they built this construction. You probably have flirted with some sort of a temptation that you wish you had some sort of physical representation of God. Don't think these people are super crazy. So this guy builds this or has it built, I should say, uh, this giant statue. Let me show you what happens. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. So he's gathered people, put together an orchestra full of tons of instruments. When you hear the sound of the orchestra, Bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. So now there's a rule to it. Not only has the king uh, put up this statue that's supposed to basically be a representation of a god, he's gathered 
a whole crew of people from all over the place, and now there's a rule connected to it. You caught the rule. The rule is when the band kicks in, drop to the ground and not like, you know, just appreciate what's going on. Worship this statue. Now, some of you are like, I mean, I've been in worse situations, right? But, but I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure that situations get worse than this. If no one's ever taught you something, I want to teach you something. See, in this group of people that are being told, all right, band kicks in, drop to the ground, worship this God. Band kicks in, drop to the ground, worship. The Jews specifically in this group would have been like, did he, did he just say, he said worship, didn't he? Oh, oh no. Let me take you to some place that you may have heard about, the Ten Commandments. And they were, you, you must not have any other God but me. If you want to know, okay, David, in this whole religion thing, how many gods do I get? Uh, it's clear, you get one, the one and only one. You must not make for yourself an idol. Exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Uh, you must not make for yourself an idol or, or any kind of image of anything in the heavens or on earth or in the sea, just in case you want, want to get creative. No, you must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate, will not tolerate, he does not tolerate, your affection for any other gods. So imagine yourself in a situation. You're like, man, it's a good day. It's a good day. What's that king been building? I have no idea. All of a sudden, he assembles everybody, and the king says something that you are absolutely forbidden to do. That's called pressure. That pushes you into a situation. You're like, I did not sign up for this. I don't want this. But you're in it. That's how life works. You find yourself in pressures going, um... I don't want to. Well, the story plays out a little bit where, like I told you, there were some Jews there, specifically a few guys, and uh, the, the band kicks in, and I mean, there's no way to hide, right? When everyone drops to the ground, bowing down, and you're like, oh, man, it's awkward. Well, so someone tattles on them. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you. They're feeding the uh, arrogance and pride of this king, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up, your majesty. So they get ratted on, okay? That's how this works, okay? So they're not doing what they're supposed to do. All of a sudden, somebody tells on them. So not only were they probably seen by some people, they now told the king. So now there's a problem. So here's what the king does. says, I want to see those guys. Brings the guys in front of him. You never want to stand in front of a king, really for any good reason whatsoever at this era, ever. Like, I don't care if you're having the best day of your life. You just don't want to be in front of the king. Uh, you want to get maybe some mail from him, but never stand in front of him. So now they're standing in front of him, and they know exactly what's going on. They know exactly the problem. They have defied not only the king, but all the people around him. They've been ratted on, and the king is ticked. That actually does not adequately describe this king. This king is psychotic, absolutely, utterly deranged. If you study his life, you'll learn that. He's not a stable human being. And when... When someone leans into saying no to you, the king, 
when someone approaches a, an arrogant person and refutes them, things explode. So uh, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made. When you hear the sound of the musical instruments, I'm just like, oh, this actually does not sound like the King David's describing. He sounds like a nice guy. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Some of you would say, I don't see an option here. There seems to be pretty much just what you have to do. Uh, and then, ooh, what a challenge. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power. If, if you ever want to make a list of things never to say, I, I wouldn't say this last sentence. He, uh, he is so mad and infuriated that he decides to literally put their lives on the line. So it's no longer even a, an act of willing submission. It's, do you see that fire right there, fellas? Bow down or I'm throwing you into it. Now, some of you are like, they regularly had a furnace just around? Uh, no. Uh, historians would tell you that the construction of the actual statue would have required putting metal in places, so they would have had to have built a, an actual furnace right there, right on site, how convenient, which I think is why the king had the idea of going, how are we going to kill you? That looks hot. And you got these guys with pressure. I don't know if you've ever felt this kind of pressure. I think you felt pressure that made you feel like a bunch of stuff. In fact, I want to bring up a couple things that if you want to relate what's going on to your very life, here's a couple observations. You will be tempted to pretend in order to fit in. And by the way, this is not just a middle school lesson for us. I thought that once I graduated high school, that went away. It doesn't. You get a job. You even start dating. You meet, a, you meet the family. You will be tempted to pretend in order to fit in. I want you thinking about the pressures you feel and your response to the pressures. And this is one of the biggies. You will be tempted to pretend in order to fit in. It's not just middle school. Think about right now. How are you doing with this? Are you simply just trying to fit in in the environments that you're in so that something doesn't happen? Here's the second one. Uh, you will be judged for rejecting other people's ideas. Thought there'd be an amen to that one. <laughs> Come on. You reject someone's idea? It doesn't even have to be on social media anymore. You reject someone. Like someone says, here's what I think is true. And you say, I don't think so. It's almost immediately like, well, I guess we'll never see each other again. Bye. You will be judged for rejecting. You I wonder, Christians, listen to me, Christians. Are you okay with being judged? Are, I know many times, well, yeah, I don't care about any other people's opinions. Yeah, you do. You care about it, but what has that been doing to you? So uh, let's look at their reaction. I mean, this is where it heats up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. There's more. I'm going to share it with you. But as I was reading this, I was like, I think we as a church just need to stop here for a second. We do not need to defend ourselves 
before you. Do you know what one of the first thoughts you're ever going to feel when you have pressure coming at you and other people around are doing things, saying things, functioning in ways that you don't actually agree with? And as a Christian, you're thinking, I don't, what, what am I going to do? Do you know one of the first things that you're going to think you have to do is defend yourself? I mean, come on. If anyone says anything about you, you feel like you have to defend yourself. I was talking to one of my kids and they said something about something that happened at school. I almost thought about, I'm going to school tomorrow because dad's got some work to do. It's amazing the thoughts you have, and you get people that you care around, or like that you care about around you. You start to think, "I got to defend." We do not need to defend ourselves. Some of you don't need any rest of the sermon. You're done. Stop defending everything. You don't have to. Now I'll show you the rest. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace. The God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Oh, this is good. If you missed it, there is one of the best Verses in the entire Bible. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I just feel like it is. So maybe if I'm just being personal, it's one of the best ones that brought up a battle that you and I face. Here it is. It's the what if versus even if battle. If you ever want to live life and not submit to the pressure of our world, you got to wrestle with this. Well, what if, what if, what if? Well, what about even if? If you want to know, like you read, you read about maybe call them heroes in the Bible, you're like, Man, they did this, they said that, it's awesome. I think some of it's attributed to this, this even if, yeah, yeah, God's powerful, can save me, can do a lot of things, but even if he chooses not to, um, as soon as I die, I see him. Even if. Here, let's learn, let's, let's peel this open like an onion, okay? We're gonna take the even if thing and we're gonna, we're gonna peel it open. Obedience, not outcome, is our responsibility. This is a lesson we've gotta learn about pressure. Because many of us, I think even as Americans, we love outcome. Outcome is a big deal. Maybe how you were raised or what you think, or maybe it's personality driven. But many of us just love outcome. We want the outcome. But I'm telling you, when it comes especially to God and what God calls you to, obedience, not outcome, is our responsibility. I can peel this a little bit more. Let's, let's, let's peel it a little bit more. Here we go. Uh, tough always tests loyalty. It always does. Whatever tough you face, test the loyalty and the commitment that you and I said we had at the beginning. Um, there's, there's an old statement. You may not know the original statement, but there's an old statement by uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, here. Uh, Man is debtor chiefly to his parents and his country after God. This was, I believe, about 700 years ago. Uh, man is debtor. So if you're like, what? Oh, I've heard that before. Yeah, in a country song. Here, God, family, country. That's what he just said. That's where we get this from. You're like, no, I got it from a country song. No, you didn't. Uh, this, this, this is where it came from. Uh, Thomas Aquinas brought this up, this idea of where you and I give loyalty. Like, actually, there's an order because sometimes we have to choose one person over the other. It's just, that's how it works. There's priority. Uh, according to Thomas Aquinas, his observation of Western civilization was that God is number one, 
then family, then country. Recently, a study was done asking people, would you rank it in the same way? And you will not be surprised that the surveys came back differently. The survey now says that family is number one, country is number two, and God is number three. Now, what do you do with this? Here's, let, me, let me teach you something. That means your desire for family, your view of family informs your view of God. Your view of country informs your view of God. That's the dangerous part of this because that means that, let's, let's just by chance say that some people think that um, saving the country is the most important thing in this world. That's a new way of thinking. There was a day where God was always first in loyalty. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, basically told the king, talk to the hand. Uh, show you what happens. So they tied him up and threw him into the furnace. <laughs> yeah. Fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. That's important because if you study the rest of the story, you'll learn exactly why it's important. And because the king in his anger, I told you he was a little... Uh, hot-tempered, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the men in. That's hot. That's how angry he was. He was like, so the furnace can burn metal, make it burn more. Turn it up. What do you do with this, right? What's the lesson? Here, God allows faithful people to be tested. Are you okay with that? When you face pressure, have you ever thought, God, what in the world did I do to deserve this pressure? If you're not willing to admit it, I will raise my hand. <laughs> God, why do I have to deal with this? Why do I have to go through this? And there's a, there's a thinking out there that, that it, if you've been bad, that's when God kind of gives you the, the, like the bad situation. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like, so far, they're like doing awesome. And they're being tested. I read a book recently that gave a story of a man uh, who was a Christian in, uh, in the Soviet Union. Years ago, the Soviet Union and, uh, and us were, were at major odds in such a, in a way that if you were a Christian ever in Russia, uh, they perceived you as an American spy. That's just what, like, it, that's what, they're like, you're a Christian? Oh, then you're a danger to us. Uh, there's a gentleman named uh, Dimitri who was a, a follower of Jesus Christ and began to tell his family about Jesus Christ, began to read them stories about Jesus Christ, and they all decided to follow Jesus Christ. That then led to some of his neighbors who were like, what in the world are you guys singing about? This is kind of weird. They found out about Jesus, decided to follow Jesus. This happened enough that uh, nearly 100 people decided to follow Jesus because Demetri just wouldn't shut his mouth about Jesus. And uh, you, you better believe that uh, the Soviets were like, this, this ain't going to fly. They came and threatened him over and over. We're going to arrest you. We're going to arrest you. We're going to arrest you. You better stop doing what you're going to do. You better stop it, stop it, stop it. Finally, they had enough, enough and heard about this. They arrested him and threw him into prison for telling people about who Jesus is. Dimitri uh, was put into a prison. You need to know about the prison. Uh, there's about 1,500 inmates in the prison. Estimates now say that he would have likely been one, maybe two, of the only Christians in the entire prison. It was not a friendly environment for them. Well, I bring this story up to you because what plays out is pretty profound. And I thought I'd share it with you. While he was in prison, he had two disciplines. I want to show you what they were. Uh, he did this every single day. Uh, in the morning, in the morning, he would wake up and he, he sang a song to God every morning. If you don't know what I mean, I'll give you more detail. 
he would actually in the morning wake up, go to the front of his cell where actually some people could see him. He would raise his hands up like this and he would sing a song that he had written about God. Uh, You're not supposed to do that if you're in jail for doing that. (laughs) He would do it every day. He would be mocked regularly. Um, I don't... Just the inmates would throw things at him, would curse him out, would do disgusting things to him, and he would do it every single day, day after day after day. The second discipline was uh, every day he would write down Bible, a Bible verse in songs that he had in his head, but he didn't want to forget them, so he would write them down. And at, at times, he would actually go put them on uh, in his cell. It was so damp, he could actually stick it onto the wall. The guards would come in and do a regular cell check. They would take those down and beat him nearly to death and say, don't do it again. The next day, he would try to find a piece of paper, something he could write on, begin to write it, and uh, put it back up. He would not stop. Finally, it came to the point that they started lying to him, the guards did. And here's the lie they told him. It's pretty despicable. They said, we just want to tell you something. We now have your family. Uh, Your kids are now in the care of the government. Your, Your wife no longer even has your kids anymore. And your wife, we are beating her every single day. He broke. They said, all we want you to do is to renounce your faith. Just tell us on paper, literally sign this piece of paper, that you don't follow Jesus anymore. That was their goal. And he broke. He said, bring it to me tomorrow and I'll sign it. In the middle of the night, he was woken up. And some of you won't believe this, but I will tell you this is his, this is his detail of the story. He was woken up to the sound um, of his family praying for him. No, they were not there. He thought they were split up and beaten and broken. And he hears them praying. They were praying for him at that very moment. The next day, the guards came back, brought the paper, signed it. He says, I've changed my mind. Jesus is king. That made them extra mad. They grabbed him, drug him out, and were taking him outside to be executed. They were going to shoot him right outside where all of the inmates were. As they drug him out, they opened up the door, the way this goes, and before they could throw him through the door, all the inmates stepped, all of them, stepped out of their cells, put their arms up, and began to sing the very song he had been singing every single day. That story brings a question. What does pressure have you bowing to? I told you this series is not going to be an inspire you series. This is an equip you series. And I would tell you if you are any kind of human being like me, Pressure has us all bowing to someone or something. What does it have you bowing to? Fear? Is it an emotion? Is it a boss? Is it a girlfriend, boyfriend? Is it, it's someone, something. Or is it God himself? I often, as a pastor, do a really bad job at finishing the story. I have left Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. And you might be wondering... 
Yes, you can go read. There's a whole lot I don't have time to preach to you on and about. There's uh, another guy shows up in the furnace. They don't die. Not only do they not die, all the clothes that was described to you in the Bible, right? Remember all that? Like, why are they describing their turbans? None of it burned. None of it smelled like smoke. And the king about lost his mind on the other side. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, do you remember what we talked about Nebuchadnezzar? Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you want to know what your pressure can do, how you deal with it, he sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command, and I underline this for you just so we all really can get this, were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. What does your pressure have you bowing to? And my challenge is, don't bow to anyone other than God himself. Make your list. Some of us might have a list. And start eliminating the list of the, of the people and things you'll bow to other than God himself. Let me pray for it. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you stir something in our very souls? Lord, would you bring this list to each one of our minds, the things that we are worshiping that are not you, the things and the people that we are choosing over you. God, you give us relationships that are valuable, opportunities that are important, but none of it is more important or valuable than you. God, whatever we have in your place on your throne, would you bring it to our minds right now and help us remove it and put you back in that throne? God, if someone needs to break up or have a difficult conversation or, or recommit or stand their ground or, or if someone needs to seek forgiveness, restoration, God, would you just press that into our souls and help us. Help us walk through this pressure so that even other people might discover that you're God. We pray this in your name. Amen.